listener production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, one of the always-on background conversations that stirs industry debate is this big theme of brand purpose. You've no doubt heard Mark Ritson call programs such as those from Starbucks as, and I quote, horseshit. But is it? Or rather, how much of it is from a horse? And to really stretch the equine analogy, how much of it in the future will be from a horse? Brand purpose is loosely intertwined with the ideas of corporate social responsibility, or otherwise known as CSR, and another iteration known as B Corps, where companies are audited and benchmarked on their purpose across social, environmental and people programs, not just profits. Now, one of our panellists today, Lorna Davis, who's the former CEO and chair of Danone North America, which globally is adopting B Corp status, says it's not far away when large audit firms like the big four will derive 50%, that's half of their revenues from auditing the environmental and social affairs of companies, not just about P&Ls and balance sheets. That speaks volumes for where this is all likely to head. So what do the megatrends mean for brand, marketing, customer experience, corporate reputation and public affairs experts? What do they do authentically if this transition really kicks in? And do people, consumers that is, really, really care? So with us today is a cracking lineup. As I mentioned, beaming in from New York is Lorna Davis, the former Australian marketing director at the Smith's Snack Food Company 25, possibly 30 years ago, I don't know, Lorna, before embarking on two decades of running consumer goods companies around the world, CEO of Kraft and Danone in China, CEO and chair of Danone North America, CEO of United Biscuits in the UK, and the list goes on. Lorna, among her numerous roles, is now a B Corp Global Ambassador and sits on the Social Mission Board of Seventh Generation and the Integrity Board of Sir Kensington. Both are owned by Unilever. Joining Lorna is Volvo Car Australia's marketing boss, Julie Hutchinson. The car maker has announced uh, it will cut fossil fuel car production by 2030. And Dan Stinton, Managing Director of The Guardian Australia. Now, The Guardian is globally owned by a not-for-profit trust and is a B Corp certified media company with clearly a fairly progressive core audience which aligns to the purpose agenda. Also joining the panel for a consumer perspective on all this is the Director of Public Affairs and the Lead Behavioural Scientist at Ipsos, Kylie Brosnan. So welcome to you all. A big intro. Let's get straight into this plant-based protein conversation, shall we? To Julie Hutchinson first. Volvo's heading fast towards electric vehicle only production, but it's got a twist. Talk us through the company's strategic agenda, Julie, and what that means for the Volvo brand, your marketing strategy and the supply chain. And I think, for instance, you have a new option in your range to play with, or it's coming soon, which is vegan seat leather. Is that true? Well, yes. Yes, it is. Why are you doing vegan seat leather? And I think it sort of bleeds into the further, the broader conversation we're here, we're having, um, Julie, about sort of purpose and, and sustainability and all those wonderful things. What's going on with Volvo? Yeah, look, um, first of all, let's go back three years ago when within the head office at Gothenburg, the executive management team defined the company purpose for Volvo, which was and is the freedom to move in a safe, sustainable and personal way. And I guess, you know, it's very easy for a company purpose to exist and to be put on, you know, the walls of the company and to be brought up in meetings and town hall discussions. But to live and breathe the purpose is a different thing. And I think from Volvo, what I've seen in the last three years since when they announced the company purpose to where we are today 
it is embedded throughout the entire organisation, which is really good from a marketing perspective because I know when I'm going to market that we are really, you know, really invested in this company purpose. So let's take the sustainability for a moment. So yes, what is the purpose? This is where we're going. What is the purpose? So the purpose is to um, give people the freedom to move in a safe, sustainable and personal way. Right. So they're our three pillars that guide the entire business. So let's carve off sustainability um, first and foremost. Uh, With sustainability, we've said set quite ambitious targets. So 2030, we will have all um, our lineup being full electric. So that's a statement in of itself. But to couple with that... No diesel, no petrol, no cars in production. No other options. It will be full electrified model lineup. Uh, And then beyond that, we're saying 2040, we want to be carbon neutral. Now, to be carbon neutral by 2040, we have to work really closely with our suppliers. We also know that from a sustainability point of view and moving to electrification, that there are challenges that we undoubtedly face. So let's take battery production for a moment. There's CO2 that, you know, is is emitted as a result of the production of, of the batteries. So Again, looking at this company purpose, what they did and what what they continue to do at all levels is look at how we source the cobalt, working with suppliers with blockchain technology, but then also on the ground audits being conducted to make sure that we're sourcing that cobalt responsibly. Uh, You touched on the the leather options as well. So we've got a new vehicle that's just been unveiled, the C40, which will be available late next year. We won't offer leather as an option in that vehicle. It will be the first vehicle that will only be available as an electric-only vehicle, but no leather trim option there. For our model lineup that we have existing, we've got wool trim options as well. So, you know, we're starting to make that move towards really walking the talk, and I think it's not lip service. It needs to be embedded within the organisation, as I said, and we have to make sure we demonstrate to customers that we're being transparent about how we behave as a sustainable organisation. Yeah, and I'm going to come back around to you, Julie, on, on on why and what you think that how this will land with your customers and prospects as well, because this is an important part of how this all plays out. But to Dan Stinton, what's behind the Guardian's move to a B Corp? And is there opportunity for this sort of position with brands and audiences for you? Um, you, you won't, for instance, take our dollars, I don't think, uh, from partic- particular sectors like oil. I think that's right. And maybe what you deem to be greenwashing. So just give us your sense of what's going on with the Guardian, why and, and, and how it plays out for you in market. Okay. Uh, yeah, thanks, Paul. Look, I think to understand that, similar to what Julie has said in regards to Volvo, I think you have to take a step back and understand the Guardian's underlying purpose. Um, so as you mentioned in your introduction, the Guardian is a fairly unique media organisation. We're 100% owned by the Scott Trust. Uh, That was created back in 1936, and I'm going to read this now. It's to secure the financial and editorial independence of The Guardian in perpetuity and to safeguard the journalistic freedom and liberal values of The Guardian free from commercial or political interference. Quite fortuitous, really. That's 90-something years ago they did that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so so what that means is that all the profits from The Guardian Media Group are reinvested back into Guardian journalism. So we we don't pay dividends to any proprietor, such as a, a Kerry Stokes or a Rupert Murdoch, uh, nor are we a publicly listed entity that is trying to maximise our share, uh, share price. We exist solely for the purpose of our journalism. Uh, and as I'm sure most of your listeners are aware, the, the Guardian is a, is a fairly proudly progressive ma- masthead. So initiatives like becoming a B Corp or refusing to accept advertising, as you mentioned, from fossil fuel companies, it's really an extension of that. It's, it's making the journalism side, or sorry, the commercial side of our business live up to the values of our journalism. Now, I should point out that, that my job is to maximise the revenue that we can earn from yes. journalism. So, uh, you know, be that through reader revenue or advertising or licensing our content. And, and sometimes these decisions, um, such as refusing some advertisers or, or individual campaigns from clients that we consider to be greenwashing, 
Uh, that can make my job pretty damn difficult in the short term. But in the long term, I would argue that these decisions also make sense commercially because it builds a tremendous amount of trust from our audience who share these values. And that translates into more reader revenue uh, as well as sort of a pretty extraordinary engagement, certainly far higher engagement that I've seen in, in 20 years of publishing uh, and working at other companies. So ultimately, I think our advertising clients benefit from that trust and that engagement. Uh, and I believe that's one of the reasons why our advertising revenue is still growing, despite the challenges we face from our good friends at Google and Facebook and, and other platforms. And, and there's not too many publishers that can say that. So I think it also, as well as this being you know, morally the right thing to do uh, and, and a purpose that you know, pretty much everyone in our organisation buys into, uh, it also makes good commercial sense. Uh, and I think a lot more companies are starting to embrace this as well. Just give us a, a bit of a tease, Dan, in terms of when you talk about um, sort of greenwashing, what you deem to be greenwashing you want to accept. Can you give us an example at all of, of, of where you've taken a line, taken a position? Look, I'm not going to mention specific clients, Paul, but nice try. Go on. But, but, but look, I think it comes back to, to, to probably what Julie mentioned as well in the start, and that is that it has to be authentic. So uh, there aren't too many companies, I think, that aren't making some sort of effort to go into this direction and starting to care more about just, uh, you know, the, the, or take their corporate and social responsibility seriously, care, care more about things other than just maximising profit. But you've got to do that in an authentic way. So, um, you know, most companies have a good story to tell, but if we feel that a company is just trying to paint a positive picture where there's not underlying truth to that, then yeah, we'll say no to them. Uh, or we'll, we'll try and work with them to tell a story which is, which is more authentic and more genuine. Most of the time we can do it. But sometimes, uh, there's, only, there's only been a handful of these, but sometimes we've, just, we've got to a point where we, we just can't make uh, a particular client's uh, objective work. Um, we feel it would be disingenuous and so, and so we say no. Um, but I think most people that come to The Guardian know what they expect. And if you're advertising on The Guardian, you're buying into that trust, so that that trust, uh, you know, you've got to take that responsibility seriously. Um, well, I tried. I'm, I'll try. I'll come back and see if I can get some some of these these names or examples at least. And Lorna Davis, um, so welcome. Thanks for beaming in from New York, by the way. Um, now you you're a, this is this is territory that is that is in your sweet spot, right? So you've heard a couple of cases here locally about what some of the global companies are doing locally. What's the big picture globally here, Lorna, and what you're seeing? There are still those that I guess remain unconvinced about purpose-driven enterprise. Why are those views misguided? Uh, and what are the inevitabilities in your view? It's coming. You're, you're convinced about that. Just wake up people is essentially your line, I think, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, you know, what I'm noticing is um, is generally change goes from the unthinkable to the impossible to the inevitable. And um, it, what's interesting in this space is, uh, you know, this is a subject that wasn't talked about for a long time. And then for some people, it's in the impossible phase. You know, it's the, oh, my God, what are we going to do about it? We know we have to, you know, get with the program, but we don't quite know how to do it. And then inevitably it'll become part of the way everything, everything runs, basically. I mean, I, I imagine a time when, you know, your kids are your age that companies will have as a matter of course, uh, uh, as they do, an audit subcommittee of the board plus an entire infrastructure to measure the financial metrics plus external auditors. They will have that as they do today. And then they will have a subcommittee of the board for CSR or ESG or whatever you want to call it with an entire infrastructure to measure the impacts of that company on the planet and the people on the planet. And there will be external auditors. And I think people are seeing that future come toward them. And today, I think people are doing it really for three reasons. Either 
license to operate reasons. So they're scared that they're either going to get legislated out or they're going to, you know, get an enormous amount of pressure from external stakeholders that have power over them or social pressure, um, you know, activists of various kinds. Um, and thirdly, employee engagement. It's a huge issue now. I think very few companies can hire good people if they don't have some kind of um, center of gravity of why they're on the planet. And Laura, I think you argue that, you know, when we talked earlier about, so who drives uh, this, this, this push to um, whether you call it a B Corp or CSR or whatever it might be, I think you said it's, it's a lot to do with the young people, right? The young people inside companies are, are a key catalyst for this. Did I hear you right on that? You know, my view is that people who are at the top of companies um, have got their um, through an, you know, through an old system, through an old fashioned paradigm. And so for some of them, they're using their power to make change in the business, some, but the vast majority are what I call permafrost. You know, they're kind of, they're kind of, uh, hard and they're actually digging in, uh, at a senior level and they're holding on to the old paradigm. Young people in the company are becoming more and more They've got less power. They've got less to lose. They're more awake, more alert. They don't want a future for their children that, that they're looking down, you know, they're looking at today. And so they not only are uh, their incredible pressure upwards on, on the senior management and companies, but they're a huge resource. You know, when people come to me and ask me, how do we sort of start the journey to become a B Corp? I always tell them, get the youngest, most passionate person in your company and get her, her to lead it. And it's a great way to kind of encourage the young people in the organisation to, to take charge. I want to get to, so what, you know, so your thoughts on where we're seeing big companies like Unilever, I think, are using their smaller divisions to rewrite the, or rewire the mothership, really. Well, I think you said that's what's going on and they're using them as sort of, as sort of innovation labs, if you like, or change labs on the outside to see if they can move um, move the big ship. But you, you've been involved in this with really big companies. Danone, obviously you were an advisor to the to the CEO, the global CEO of Danone on this whole B Corp thing. Um, what are, What is going on inside B companies? And, and we will get to the authenticity bit in a minute, but um, how would you see uh, the appetite from big? You saw this, you talk about a blockage at the top from senior management or old school thinking, but at the same time, some of these big companies are doing it and we're seeing it in the investment community as well, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to move um, a big organisation with a lot of stakeholders that are kind of attached to old style values. And so everyone's tackling it differently. I mean, I think some of the big companies are, buying small B Corps or they're turning uh, divisions in their organization into a B Corp so that those can kind of infect the organization, if you like, from the inside and they can learn. I mean, I have enormous compassion for CEOs of big businesses who are trying to juggle uh, so many stakeholder interests. And I think it's wise for them to, to get small pods in their companies that can experiment and, and you know, create new ways of thinking. And then they, uh, they, they kind of, you know, can, can do a little test bed, if you like, and then scale up to the big organization when they're ready. Because of course, people running big companies are trying to keep the financial system of, of the old metrics moving at the same time as in, as embedding some of these innovations that, that, that we've already heard about today. So I think it's a, it's a smart idea for big companies to start small or to buy small to, to kind of embed that stuff in their company in an unusual way. 
How does, for someone who's um, uninitiated, how does Lorna Davis, uh, Global Ambassador at B Corp, define what a B Corp, B Corp is as opposed to a B Cop? I'm not sure that's that they exist. Maybe they do. <laughs> Maybe you're it. <laughs> oh, so a B Corp is, uh, is, is a certification. You have to get more than 80 points out of 200. Um, it's uh, evaluated or it's um, administered by a not-for-profit called B Lab. Um, and you also have to change your legal framework so that you can make a, so that you do make a legal and public commitment to um, have a wider range of stakeholders than your financial ones. So you have to actually declare your environmental and social commitments for your company beyond profits and sort of I, mean, I guess the the, the pinup there of a B Corp is Patagonia, Lorna, but some others in in, in your in the lineup that um, that our listeners would would be aware of. What um, who else? Ben and Jerry's, uh, the Body Shop. Uh, Athleta, Natura, all birds. Yeah, plenty. All right, so Nelson, we've got to this the, the big picture and the big the big effort around um, what's going on for B Corp certification and beyond. But what if you're not a Volvo, Lorna, or you're not the Guardian, or you're not a Patagonia? What if you're a Nike, a Gillette, Coca Cola, or an ANZ Bank, for instance, which have taken positions on particular social and environmental issues, from black rights to gay rights to new world masculinity? and even sustainable use of plastic. So what do companies do in this transitional period? As a former marketer, uh, I guess, you know, can brands and marketing reputation teams do credible work? Should they? Where do they start? You're a bit of a contrarian on Gillette's new masculinity campaign, which was out a few years back, um, as in you think it was worth doing. So how do marketers, brands do something in transition if they don't have their act together um, right through uh, their business and enterprise? Well, the reason I'm a bit of a contrarian on on some of these experiments is I think it's really important that we encourage people to experiment. I mean, this is not easy. Uh, consumers are tricky. They uh, they're, they're, they behave in an uh, inconsistent way. They change their minds. It's not easy. So we need to be experimenting and we need to, to, to be tolerant when companies try and when they mess up. I think that they have a much better chance the more diverse are the group of stakeholders that they uh, that they include in their thinking. Um, I think a lot of the mistakes we make is when we operate in an echo chamber and we're just, you know, talking to ourselves essentially. And I think you can really tell that in some of the campaigns. You, you know, you can see that there was, let me call it cynicism in the boardroom. Um, and I think that in order to avoid those kinds of traps, you need to have really, really diverse people in your space. And, you know, I was just talking earlier, in fact, to the Ben and Jerry guy, who's a, who's a, who's a friend of mine. And, and I think what they say is um, the closest relationship you can have with your consumer is the one over shared values. That is genuinely their kind of motto. And it's true. And the question of why people struggle a lot with this, why marketers struggle a lot, is that they've lost connection with their consumers. You know, I, I, I remember, Paul, once you asked me, you know, who are the people in the companies that are the most sort of in touch with this journey? And often I'm staggered to find that marketing people are not in touch with this journey. They're still operating in their own little world, you know? And I think the more connected they get to um, a very diverse range of stakeholders, the more likely they are to succeed. But I also think we need to give them a break as they experiment. In the example of what we talk about, say, whether it's Gillette or Nike or others, and we see lots of people, even Julie, maybe two years ago, Julie, you had an environmental campaign going here that sort of won you some awards, although I guess that was after the, the sustainability. The Living Seawall, I yeah, think you're referring right. to, which is the um, sustainability initiative we put in. I think to Lorna's earlier point, 
I think you've got to look deep within the company and ask those questions around what do we stand for? What do we want to be doing? And asking questions that maybe um, you think the managing director doesn't want to answer, but ask those tough questions so that you can get inside and work out, okay, we've got to stand for something. And generally, I think if I look back at Volvo, whilst this company purpose was defined in three years ago, it really was the core of the business from its outset. You know, it was always around safety and sustainability isn't something that we've just looked at in the last couple of years. In fact, you know, there were many initiatives around, you know, sustainability dating back to the 70s. And then personal is around that human centricity. So I think, you know, you'd like to think, and, and Lorna probably has a lot more exposure to a lot of other different brands, but the values should be within the DNA of the organisation. It's actually finding them and, and surfacing them and then living and breathing them. Um, Dan, do you, do, you know, what do you see in terms of the companies and the campaigns coming through to the Guardian um, that are trying to do this sort of work? Are you, are you seeing this more? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's becoming a much more common thing uh, for marketers, I think, to want to talk about their purpose and the values of their company and the campaigns that they run. And it varies. I mean, one thing I think it's really important to get across here is that it's not just your B Corps, you know, your Patagonias, your body shops, uh, and your not-for-profit companies that are doing this. So, so yes, we've done fantastic campaigns with companies like Bank Australia and on ethical investing or PowerShop on 100% green energy. And in a sense, it's easy for companies like these that were set up with a purpose from the beginning, and they've been fantastic campaigns. But as I mentioned earlier, almost every company in the world is paying more attention to their corporate and social responsibility. So, um, and, you know, they're dedicating material resources to activities that are, that are about much more than just maximising profits. So there are a lot of companies that you might not expect that have a, a really genuine story to tell. Um, and the results that we're seeing suggest that these campaigns can also be really, really effective, much more effective than, uh, I guess, campaigns that don't necessarily draw on these values. So to give you a couple of examples, um, Dairy Australia, um, they're doing a lot of work to mitigate the impact of, of methane emissions, as well as replacing plastic packaging and, and renewable plant uh, with renewable plant-based packaging. So, uh, I mean, that's a really important story. I, th- I don't think many consumers would be aware of that. So I think it's important to get that, that message out. Though on that, so greenwashing is a good example because obviously we know that, that, um, that cattle are a big emitter yeah. and they're trying to do all sorts of methane capturing technologies to, to, to offset that. Um, so you, you at The Guardian obviously saw there's, an, there's a legitimate and authentic way in which the dairy industry is trying to do something on offsetting gas emissions from, from, their, from their dairy cows. So you ran with it, right? You said, no, that's not spin. That's right. And, and look, to, to give you, uh, without going into all the gory details of this, I mean, this is obviously an area where you have to be pretty alert to the possibility of greenwashing. Um, you know, we had a, a session with uh, that included our editorial team and we investigated the claims that were being made. We made sure they were genuine, made sure they were substantial. And then uh, after we found out that they were, I mean, it, we were very happy to, to, to promote them. I mean, it basically, you, you, as, as Lorna mentioned earlier, you want to be encouraging companies to be doing this and talking about it so that more companies do this and talk about it. So I think, you know, that worked really, really well. I mean, but there's, there's others as well. I mean, Commonwealth Bank, uh, they're putting a lot of effort into helping women that are victims of domestic and financial abuse. I mean, I think that, and, and dedicating material resources to this, that's worth um, championing and, and, and hopefully more financial institutions will do the same thing. Uh, obviously, uh, we've touched on Volvo and, and the fact that you're going to 100% um, green fleet. I mean, that's, uh, that's, these, are, these are really important things that we should be encouraging and, and really fantastic stories. Now, and obviously, Paul, I'll just I'll finish with this and I'll, I'll, I'll leave my monologue. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but, but, you know, I think it's worth noting that the reason that campaigns 
performs like this, performs so well on The Guardian, is because we tend to attract people that have a fairly progressive worldview, right? So these kind of values uh, tend to be uh, ones that are shared with our audience. And so I, I would argue, obviously, that we're a pretty natural home for these uh, for these kind of campaigns. Of your audience, Dan, what percentage would resonate with or be progressive with this sort of agenda um, out of your total, you know, I don't know, what do you, how many, what's a typical number for you in a week? Uh, oh, look, it, it varies. We, we, we tend to hover around 7 million Australians. We, we got up to about 12 million at the height of the pandemic, but um, we've settled back down now. I won't go into all the specifics because I'll bore your listeners, but on on at a high level, about half of our audience is probably people that are coming to us because of an individual story that they might find on on search or social or whatever else. But about half of that audience are, are really dedicated, uh, loyal um, uh, uh, readers, if you like, that, that really engage with uh, both our journalism and the values that underpin it. So again, this this provides, a, I think, a really fantastic environment for um, brands that have a, a purpose message to get across uh, because our audience is going to be receptive to those kind of messages. Kylie Brosnan, the consumer view here, with, with what Lorna said and what uh, Julie and Dan are talking about with some of the examples uh, of either deep, um, I guess, sustainability and commitment to, to, to broader beyond profit um, versus finding some initiatives that companies are doing. How is this landing... Uh, with consumers? Does it land authentically? And do they give a rat? I guess this is the, you know, how do you carve up the consumer mood and perception on this? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Look, um, the survey research really shows that brand purpose is one way to build that emotional attachment um, through those shared values, as Lorna said, to your brand. Um, And we've done hundreds of studies that shows that um, emotional attachment is also um, producing quite loyal uh, customers, customers who don't switch. Um, but as you say, like people don't always do what they say and say what they do. And I think this is where that emotional attachment can really hurt customers when they find out their brand's not being totally honest with them or they're not being authentic. And so I guess that kind of journey between being a brand with purpose and a purposeful brand through to having a purpose-driven brand um, is a long one. It takes time. And the journey that people go through with a brand um, is one of trust and building trust and building a relationship and understanding each other. And so therefore, if the brand is not authentic and if the brand does not really deliver on what they promise to do, then consumers are pretty savvy and they're pretty cynical and they'll get hurt and they'll back off. So consumers can trust a clear message about brand purpose when the balance of all the elements within the organisation, just as Lorna has talked about, um, in in making sure that it comes all the way through the organisation because you do what you say and if you're authentic because you say what you do, and this is a big one, brands are not always good at communicating what they do and consumers can get off track with what your brand is doing because there's just so much social media and hashtag fake news out there that they could actually get mistaken along the way. I've got to ask though, and I want to ask uh, both Lorna and Kylie on this is, you know, we saw, we see this uh, alleged appetite from the public to back more sustainable, good for the planet, good for social uh, enterprises. But then what the hell happened with coals and the plastic bags? I don't get this. I don't understand why if, you know, it's a single-use plastics is a big thing. My kids, my boys are teenagers and they're all over it. Then massive backlash where coals introduced no bags and then the big pushback. So what does that say about the consumer mindset and appetite to walk the talk on this as opposed to talk it? Thoughts from afar, Lorna? Well, I don't, I don't know about the coals thing. I mean, I know the story, but I, I don't know the detail. Kylie can talk about that. But what I can tell you is that um, 
you know, I'm on the board of Seventh Generation, as you said, and um, I, the one thing that I think we need to talk about more is the impact of COVID on this kind of behavior. So, you know, we've got people talking about landfill and, uh, you know, multi-use, this and that, um, reusable, recyclable, and the, um, the spike in single-use materials <laughs> in COVID has been breathtaking. I mean, for example, our single-use wipes, which, are, which were, a, you know, a reasonable seller before COVID, we were, you know, we didn't feel good about them. We didn't want to be in the single-use wipe business. And we were, you know, discussing what their future would be. And then through COVID, single-use wipes straight, straight through the roof, as, of course, everybody on this call. I mean, one of, one of, one of my clients has been, uh, is in the sort of pump plastic business, you know, those are very complicated things that go in the top of, of, of hand sanitizers and stuff. I mean, those, those materials are incredibly complex, very, very, very difficult to recycle. And they've gone through the roof because of COVID. So I think we're seeing that when the chips are down and people's health are at stake, that's what they're going to prioritize over, over you know, things, environmental concerns that seem to be more long term. And I think that's our challenge is we always need to be ahead. We need to understand that that's what was primary in, in consumers' concerns in the last year as they were, in, in inverted commas, fighting for their lives. And now we need to innovate our way out of that too. So I think the, 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 the game is always moving. And I think we need to see that as a challenge, not as an annoying consumer habit, because we we're all part of that, right? We were all doing the same thing, right? Washing our hands with those little things, you know, throwing away masks. So I think it's just, it's just you need to be constantly moving and innovating. Well, it's just, just a hypothetical here, Lorna, in terms of reconciling that tension in, in single-use wipes, for instance, and the, and, the, and the business is going crazy, the temptation there is you're going to let it go crazy, aren't you? You're going to let it make, it make you some money. What's the short-term position on that and the mid-term? Well, the short-term, I mean, yes, because not only are you, you know, you're not just, you're actually helping too, right? Because people were really scared and they needed to keep their hands clean. But then we said, well, we need to double down on other areas of our business. So let's accelerate our zero plastic uh, agenda so that, we're, you know, all, all of us are operating with a pot portfolio of activities uh, as individuals as well. All of us are throwing away things and getting on airplanes and eating meat or whatever it is that we're doing. And so it's actually the portfolio of our, our activities that we need to consider. And I think companies are the same. And I think, honestly, Paul, I, I know that it makes for better podcast you know, material, if you can get kind of knocky. But we need to give people as much encouragement and love and support as they go through this journey as you can, because it's bloody hard. Yeah. <laughs> and so we should just, we should just keep trying and, and keep experimenting, keep getting feedback, keep getting better and better and better. Because it's, it's, you know, it's the most exciting journey we can be on, man. Yes, and you're right. Naki does work because it's a, a humans like Naki because it gets them. But you're right, and, and I guess this is what we saw with Gillette, right, with the, with the, the, the new masculinity. It was like it, it polarised massively. It threatened blokes and their identity and so forth. So quick question to Dan on, on terms of what would you project to be your response from your readers around the Gillette um, new masculinity. That's a kind of a progressive positioning. Did they like it or did, did you see any any response? To that? Or what would you imagine it would be? Well, you're testing me now, Paul. I mean, we did cover this and I, I think my uh, recollection is that similar to what we're discussing today, it was a, it was a fairly polarised right. view. Um, 
Uh, personally, I mean, look, I think it was a little bit ham-fisted in how they um, how they went about it, but I, I probably take Lorna's view here and that I, I think it's great that, that they were at least starting to experiment with these sort of things. And I think a lot of the backlash, uh, or at least some of the backlash, is, is no doubt because this is still quite a new space, right? We're not used to seeing brands, uh, or up until recently, we weren't used to seeing brands talk about things other than how good their product was, right? And so I think as uh, as we've touched on through this conversation, this is going to become more and more prominent and something that more and more brands are doing. I think we'll probably, or I hope at least in time, we'll see less polarisation when brands occasionally get this wrong or a little bit tone deaf in how they go about it. And hopefully brands will get better at it as well, right? We'll see more brands doing this and doing it well. And therefore, ultimately, you know, what we're, what the, the benefit of this is we're going to have um, not just profits being maximised, but corporate and social responsibility being maximised. Kylie, I've got to ask the Coles plastic bag scenario. Explain this conundrum to me. <laughs> well... To air is human, and um, we know that humans are perfectly flawed, rationally irrational, and um, the behavioural economics scientists have always said that there will be heuristics, biases, and things that make us not make good, sound decisions. And as Lorna said, when we're fearing something, we'll move towards that behaviour to protect ourselves rather than perhaps where our values might sit in that situation. And we know that when COVID hit, that the um, terror management theory sort of kicked in and people did double down and really start to question their values and their reason for being and their purpose. Um, But they were still going to protect themselves and their families by using products that potentially were against the values that they really held dear. So you can't always assume that people are going to behave in a way that you want them to behave um, just because they value um, you know, what you're trying, your brand story is. You really have to get in and get into the mindset of the, the customer and really understand um, how customers make decisions. And I think what we've been talking about here is a lot of brands being very brave and courageous and really trying to do something different, um, but not really testing with consumers and not really getting that feedback first before they make the plunge. Um, and so, you know, at Ipsos, we see a lot of brands come to us and we can actually really test trust and emotional attachment, which are the two things that are really key here if you're talking about brand purpose. And you can't do that through a survey. And this is where neuromarketing and uh, physiological measures can really help to understand um, the decision-making processes, whether they're using systems one fast and automatic um, in a really trustworthy situation, or whether they're they're really you know uh, conflicted and disrupted and and um, and choose something different because they don't really understand the brand story. Thanks, Kylie. Lorna, um, we're going to wrap this up in a few minutes. But um, you did mention earlier that marketing almost is too narrow, not not diverse enough, and needs to overhaul itself. What is your sense in in the context of brand purpose? Well, firstly, just give us a, a hit really on your view on marketing coming from that sector early in your career, but marketing and and what it needs to do now and then then in, in relation to brand purpose and, and, and how marketers should be thinking about this. But first, up, the, your take on marketing as a CEO. First thing is, um, what I think is interesting is how many of these innovations are actually coming from uh, startups who are um, disrupting uh, established organizations and established spaces. Um, so if you take, for example, I don't know, I was just, talking to somebody today about retail and brick and mortar retail and how difficult it is for brick and mortar retail to juggle some of the many re- realities of um, you know sort of needing very big things to 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 have a good presence on shelf which are often poor for the environment 
But then we're seeing an enormous number of disruptors um, in the retail space who, for example, there's a, there are a couple of organizations here in the US and one in France that have just come up in the last year or two that are only selling ugly vegetables and fruit, that are only selling stuff that's really close to use by date, that are only selling stuff that other people consider to be waste. And of course, that's enormously conflicting for uh, you know, an existing legacy organization that's trying to do whatever it used to be doing. Um, and I think that when you're seeing, and the same is true of if you take, I don't know, let's take toothpaste. You know, This whole tooth care business has been disrupted like crazy by, um, by small startups who, to, who don't have any toothpaste tubes and who have got all sorts of innovations that are speaking right to the heart of consumers' concerns uh, in a way that's relevant to them today. So why were the big guys not doing that, right? The big guys weren't doing that because they were presumably still asleep and trying to sell the stuff that they were trying to sell yesterday and then put lipstick on a pig effectively. So if you're really close to, to who you're connecting to, and let's, I mean, The Guardian is a magnificent, yeah, basically The Guardian and Volvo, I'm not going to, I'm not just pissing in your pockets, as they say here and there in Australia, but you're both ex magnificent examples of having really tight brand positioning that makes it really clear what you should be up to. I mean, when I listen to both of your mission statements, I think, yeah, that lands, right? That makes sense. I think the people that are struggling are the ones who are, uh, out of touch and they've got they're trying to sell stuff that they all know nobody wants anymore but they've got factories that they have to maintain and they've got shareholders that they're trying to give a quick hit to so i think coming back to the role of marketers in that i mean i think the more honestly and openly they're having that conversation the better and 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 my view is that the smartest place for a marketing person to start right now is to think about the three people that they would be terrified to hear from First up, let's have a conversation with Greenpeace. Let's have a conversation with whoever it is that you're really scared of. And then I think have um, a really meaty set of conversations with the people who really, really, really you're trying to talk to. Not, not through, you know, third parties, Ipsos is great, but like really connect with people like we used to in the old days, you know, like when you actually spoke to people. Because you never had a better opportunity. Um, Lorna, you're just triggering another 14-hour conversation. We're going to call it a day here. We have to because we'll keep going. But I want one minute uh, from each of you, uh, Max, on what your, what your hunch is about where this whole brand purpose debate will be in two years. Starting with you, Lorna, in two years' time, what do you expect to see? And the clock is counting now. You know, I think that the idea of... Um, of having a business that doesn't have a clear sense of purpose will be as ludicrous in, in two years or certainly in five years as smoking is now. I mean, 10 years ago, there were people smoking in that studio or 15 years ago. And now we look and we say, really? Really? That's insane. And that really did go from unthinkable, impossible, inevitable. And I think the same is true here. Great point. Dan Stinton? Look, probably furious agreement. Uh, but I guess uh, taking a step back, the point I would make is, do we really think that consumers in two years' time are going to care less or more uh, about things like climate change or uh, women's rights or Black Lives Matter? I mean, my uh, pretty safe bet is they're going to care more. 
And so I think companies that don't lean into this are ultimately going to get left behind. I think we're going to see, uh, to Lorna's point, I think every company is going to is going to embrace this because I think that uh, the general public are going to expect them to. Kylie Brosnan, 30 seconds, one minute actually. I gave everyone one minute. You got one minute too. Look, the distinction between brand purpose and purposeful brands is understood by consumers. So you can't fake it to make it in this space. Um, you have to be authentic and consumers really value you know, human-like um, characteristics for your brand, such as being progressive, trustworthy, impactful, authentic, effective, empowering, consistent, helpful. And all of these things are considered to have part of that brand purpose. So kind of work out who you are as a brand and be authentic and communicate it well. Make sure your customers understand exactly what you're doing, why you're doing it and who you are. I mean, that's what we do as humans. If we're our authentic self and we are open and transparent, we're much more likely to make friends. And I guess that's the same with brands. People can connect to them on an emotional level if they are being them true selves. They talk about their brand story um, and they do good work. Great stuff, uh, Kylie. And last but not least, Volvo. What are you predicting, Julie Hutchinson? Look, I'm predicting, first of all, companies will be more specific on who they're after. So from our point of view, we've got 1% market share. We don't want 99% market share. So we want to go after a very defined group of people who share the values we have. So I think being very true to who we are and speaking through that, we will attract that audience, which is really important for us. Uh, the numbers don't lie. So be it sales numbers, be it profitability numbers, we will be able to see in a couple of years' times those companies who have followed through on brand purpose and what that has delivered. But I think we've got to get away from possibly not walking the talk and just getting on to hot topics. Um, it's got to be embedded throughout the organisation. Thank you, Julie. Great conversation. Lorna Davis, Julie Hutchinson, Dan Stinton, Kylie Brosnan, thank you for your time. Great session and we will we have to do a follow-up. Thank you. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Listener.